Let's take our Bibles once more and return to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. I'll be reading through verse 24. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you, that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. I've recently been listening to a series of novels uh, written by uh, an author named C.S. Forrester, and those this series of novels revolve around the exploits of a hero named Horatio Hornblower. Not exactly what we would consider a heroic name. Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, John Wayne. But it sticks with you. Strange name to give the hero of your books, but it has the advantage of being unforgettable. If you're not familiar with the Hornblower series, they were written over the course of decades, from the late 30s to the 60s, and they trace the career of an officer in His Majesty's Navy in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, that officer being Horatio Hornblower. And those novels came to mind as I was reading this passage from Luke this week. You see, one of the recurring events which takes place as the story of Hornblower's rise from midshipman to admiral unfolds, is the giving and receiving of reports. It's a naval thing. It's a military thing. No matter what happens, there's got to be a report. Sometimes the reports are first verbal and then put in writing. Sometimes it's in writing alone, but in His Majesty's Navy, it seems, to the writing of reports, there is no That's what's happening here in Luke 10, as our passage opens before. As we saw last week, Jesus sent out a group of disciples on a short-term missions trip. There's a discrepancy among the manuscripts as to whether Jesus sent out 70 or 72, but in regard to our understanding of Luke's account, it's of no great significance. Luke's point is that this larger group of disciples were little John the Baptists. Uh, They were to be forerunners of the Messiah. They were to function as heralds of the coming king. When Jesus sent them out, he sent them to those cities and towns which he would be passing through as he made his way to Jerusalem. And in those places, his disciples were to proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. Now we find that they have completed their mission, and now they've returned to give a report. Now this report was not exactly given with a 
military degree of discipline. Can you imagine a senior officer receiving the report of a junior officer who had just returned from his assigned mission and reading Captain? It was so cool. You should have been there. That's essentially what the disciples are doing. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They came back to Jesus, and they were so excited they could hardly contain themselves. But there's another way in which this report was very different from anything you would find in a military report. The disciples come back to issue their report, and Jesus already knows what had happened. Verse 18, Jesus says, I was watching. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And as a result of what Jesus saw, we find that the disciples were not the only ones who were rejoicing. Jesus was rejoicing too. Down in verse 21, we read that at, the very, at, at that very time, he, that is Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. And so as we read through this passage, we find that everything that Luke tells us is held together by the string of joy. Joy on the part of the disciples. Joy on the part of Jesus. So we're going to follow that string this morning as we examine the things which were the soils. The, the soils. <laughs> you know, speaking like the three stooges for some reason. The source of this joy for the disciples and for Jesus. And the first thing we see is that there is joy in God's victory over Satan. Jesus sent the 70 to heal the sick and to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near to you. You see that back up in verse 9. That was their mission. He warned them then that there would be danger that they would encounter. Back up in verse 3. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He told them that some might reject him, that they might not have a place to stay, they might not have food to eat. Whatever the difficulties the disciples encountered on their mission, they returned with joy. Sometime later saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The mission had been a fantastic success. Things had happened which they had never anticipated. They had healed the sick. They proclaimed the good news. And to their astonishment, they even cast out demons. Now notice that these disciples understood very well that they did not have the power to do these things in themselves. They specifically say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The power which they exercised over the demonic realm did not reside in them. It came from Jesus. And these disciples were not confused in regard to that point. They knew very well that apart from Jesus, they could do nothing. It was because they went in Jesus' name. If you or I, brothers and sisters, accomplish anything for the kingdom, that's the reason. Not because we're so wonderful, not because we're so gifted, not because we're so talented. Because we do it in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And after the disciples report their victory to Jesus, it had to feel somewhat anticlimactic to them when Jesus says, Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was watching. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, most of us have experienced this kind of thing, right? You're telling a joke and someone else jumps in with the punchline. You're telling a story. It turns out everybody already 
the story. Those kinds of things happen all the time, and it kind of ruins the experience, but it's not really that big a deal. But this is in another category altogether, because there is no earthly way that Jesus could have known what happened. And what Jesus says goes far beyond what the disciples had experienced, doesn't it? It wasn't only that Jesus knew what the disciples had done. They knew what the result was. He knew what had happened because of what the disciples had done. He knew what was going on in the spiritual realm. Commentators often differ over what Jesus means by this statement. They differ, for instance, about what Jesus saw when he describes it as Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Some suggest that Jesus is referring back to Satan's original fall from heaven. When he first rebelled against God and was cast down. Others suggest Jesus was referring to his victory over Satan in the wilderness. Some point forward to Jesus' defeat of Satan at the cross. Or even his future defeat of Satan when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. The image of Satan falling is something that we see time and time again throughout Scripture. Satan is the archenemy of God, and he is the accuser of God's people. His very name means adversary. Created as one of God's most beautiful angels, he rebelled against his creator, and as punishment for his pride, he was banished from glory. In Isaiah 14, a passage which Many believe applies to both the king of Babylon and to Satan. Verse 12 says, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? Perhaps this is what Jesus saw when he saw Satan fall from heaven. At the time of his rebellion, when he came down to earth, his glory was extinguished. It was, he was cast out. If so, then verses 18 and 19 have Jesus explaining why demons are subject to this group of evangelists that he has sent out. It was because the might of Satan, the prince of all diabolical powers, was already broken. In the words of Cyril of Alexandria. God threw Satan down from on high to earth, from overweening pride to humiliation, from glory to contempt, from great power to utter weakness. Now, assuming that these 70 were not really much different than the 12, you can understand Satan's humiliation. These guys are demonstrating themselves to be more powerful than me and my demonic legion. There are other mentions of Satan's falling, of course. John wrote about this, as we mentioned, in the book of Revelation. The great dragon was thrown down. This isn't even the lake of fire. This is prior to that in chapter 12, verses 9 to 11. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. They have conquered him, not in and of themselves, but by the blood of the Lamb. The great victory that Jesus won over Satan at the cross will then be made complete when God throws Satan down into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20, where he will be tormented 
day and night forever and ever. But it seems quite obvious to me that Jesus here in Luke 10, 18 is making a reference to the specific events that are being described. The sending forth of his disciples. What happened, of course, is connected to the initial fall of Satan from heaven. It's connected to Christ's victory over Satan at the cross. It's certainly connected to Christ's ultimate conquering of Satan as he cast Satan into the lake of fire. It's connected to all of these things because as the disciples went out and as they cast out demons in the name of Jesus, they were participating in Jesus' defeat of Satan, which was already a certainty. Even before he went to the cross. The ultimate defeat of Satan was already being manifest in the ministry of these disciples. And that is why Jesus watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He had all, Satan had already lost. Jesus perceived that when his servants cast out demons, Satan was falling from his high seat of rebellion as quick as a flash of light. Now, another issue commentators differ on is in verse 19 about being able to tread on serpents and scorpions. Jesus says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, some suggest that this is to be taken literally. Others say figuratively. Some have gone so far as to interpret Luke 10, 19 so literally, literally that they have made snake handling a test of fellowship. We're not going to do that. Some will say the only true Christian evangelist is someone who can handle poisonous snakes and remain unharmed. They find confirmation for that in the story of Paul at Malta in Acts 28 when he, the apostle took a, shook a, a viper off into the fire. But it seems more likely that Jesus is speaking about, once again, the circumstances surrounding the sending of the sepulchre. The real issue here is not physical danger from poisonous vipers, but spiritual danger from the old serpent, the devil. Read the entire verse. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Going all the way back to the garden and going forward to the book of Revelation, the serpent is a very familiar biblical image of Satan. And most likely the scorpions here, as they you, you find hints of this in Revelation as well, or a reference to his demons. But the point of these symbols is of, of spiritual evil is that the name of Jesus Christ gives authority to resist Satan and those who are aligned. The power of God constrains the power of Satan in the life of the believer. Now, if God, in his sovereign providence, desires to make you invincible from the bite of snakes and scorpions, well, I guess scorpions would be a sting, wouldn't it? He's perfectly capable of doing it. But keep the statements in the context. This is spiritual warfare. This is the power that the people of God exercise over the kingdom of darkness in the name of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ, God gives us a way to escape the temptations of the evil one. And through the ministry of his spirit, he keeps us safe from the enemy 
until he brings us home to glory. Satan can never do us any ultimate harm. We may suffer hardship, even unto death, as the apostles did. But nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ. We should never believe, even for a moment, the devil's lie that he has power over us. He does not. Because we belong to Jesus. And Jesus has conquered the evil one. What a great triumph that is. What a great joy whenever we claim God's victory over Satan through Jesus Christ. This happens... Whenever God's word is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it happens whenever a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. It happens whenever secret sin is brought into the light of the cross. It happens whenever a Christian stands firm against the temptation to lust after life's pleasures or to be embittered by life's disappointments or to rage against a dark providence. Or to do anything else that is contrary to God's will in our lives. The point of these verses is that Jesus is victorious over Satan. He empowers his disciples to resist Satan and his demons. And Satan can never overpower the people of God. Not as long as we stand firm in Christ. By the power of the Spirit. By the power of the Word. We will be kept safe throughout this life until we see Jesus face to face. That's the promise. Don't fall prey to Hollywood. Don't fall prey to the popular conception of Satan that he is somehow equal with God. He is not. He never has been. He is a created being. And now he is a conquered, created being. God has gained the victory over Satan in Jesus Christ. And so there is joy in God's victory over Satan. Not ours, but God's. The second cause for rejoicing that we see in this passage is found in God's gift of eternal life. Verse 20 says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. As great as the joy is of God's victory over Satan, there is a greater joy for the disciples of Jesus. Jesus pointed these disciples to this greater joy there in verse 20. Now, Jesus' first statement there in verse 20 is a little bit strange. At least it is to me as I read it. He tells these disciples not to rejoice in the fact that the spirits are subject to them. I don't know about you, but that seems like something to rejoice in. We just spent 10 minutes talking about that. So how do we understand this? I think we need to understand this not as a prohibition, but comparison. It seems that Jesus is not saying that these disciples should not rejoice in God's victory over Satan. That's a wonderful thing. How can God's people not rejoice in that? Rather, Jesus was saying that their joy as regards their participation in God's victory over Satan should pale in comparison to their joy in God's gift of eternal life. If you don't have one, you don't have the other after all. Jesus used an idea that was very common in those days. It was the image of a register. We've already encountered this in Luke chapter 2. In the Christmas story. Luke says there, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. To be registered in a book entitled those so registered to certain privileges. In the context of a census, the register would provide full privileges for a full citizen and partial privileges for a 
does it mean to have our names written in heaven? It means that we are registered as full citizens who have full privileges. It means that we have a right to all the privileges of heaven, all the heavenly blessings are ours. We are entitled to God's love and protection for all eternity. We are promised that there will, in that day, be no more sin, no more suffering. We are promised that death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for all eternity. Knowing that we belong to God, that our names are written in heaven, should cause all of us to know the deepest experience of joy. No matter what else we're experiencing. Joy, we're told, is always ours. Rejoice, Paul says, always. Always. Our joy in God's gift of eternal life will sustain us. Through all of the difficulties that come to us in this life. Until we get to the next one. Where there will be no difficulties. Where there will be nothing but joy. I hope that you are familiar with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was born to a grocer in Wales. And he studied medicine. And at a very young age became an assistant to the royal physician. He later became a member of the Royal College of Physicians and was in line himself to become the royal physician until his career in medicine came to an end because he decided he would rather be in ministry. He became the assistant to a very well-known G. Campbell Morgan at Westminster Chapel in London. And upon Campbell's death, he became the pastor. And over the course of his ministry, became the most influential voice for evangelical Christianity in Great Britain. He was the founder of something called the Westminster Conference. He was the one who began the Banner of Truth Trust Publishing House, both of which would be instrumental in bringing about a revival in interest in the theology and writings of the Puritans. He came to be widely regarded as the greatest English-speaking preacher of the 20th century. In 1980, the good doctor was coming to the end of his life in ministry, only able to sit up for an hour or two each day. Ian Murray, who had been Lloyd-Jones' assistant pastor, then becoming executive director of Banner of Truth, came to visit, and he asked his old mentor this question. How are you coping now that your ministry is so confined? I thought that was rather interesting. You know, we come into a situation like situation like that, we tend to be very general. How you doing? How you feeling? This is very specific. How are you coping with the fact that your ministry is now so confined? Lloyd-Jones replied with verse 20 of Luke 10. Do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And then he added, I am perfectly content. When he came to the end, his joy was not found in all that had been accomplished through his ministry. His joy was not found in the movements that he had begun, or the sermons that he had preached or the books that he had written, his joy was found in the fact that his name was written in heaven and in that he was content. Amen. The joy of God's gift of eternal life is a joy that will keep every believer safe until that one sees his Savior. There is joy in God's gift of eternal life no matter what else we're experiencing. 
But there's one more thing mentioned here that gives joy as well. And that is this. There is joy in God's revelation to his elect. Amen. Notice how Luke expressed it in verses 21 through 24. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see, and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear, and did not hear them. Now the word that Luke used for Jesus rejoicing is interesting. The word for rejoice there in verse 21 connotes an exuberant ecstasy. It's not just mild happiness. It's not amusement. It's ecstasy. It's the exaltation which comes when one experiences the fullness of joy. While the disciples rejoiced to see God's victory over Satan, Jesus encouraged them to rejoice even more over God's gift of eternal life. But Jesus himself rejoiced supremely in God's revelation to the elect. Interestingly, as J.C. Ryle observed, this is the only instance on record of our Lord Jesus Christ rejoicing. We read, Ryle says, that in that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Three times we are told in the Gospels that our Lord Jesus Christ wept. Once only we are told that he rejoiced. And why did he rejoice? He rejoiced because of the doctrine of election. A lot of people would think that very strange. Because a lot of people want to avoid the doctrine of election at all costs. It is for some reason controversial. I don't get it. It is all through the scripture. The sovereignty of God over every aspect of his universe is made clear if one will simply listen to the text. And God's exhaustive sovereignty does not come to an end when we are talking about salvation. The Father, we're told, reveals truth to the elect. And for Jesus, that was cause for exuberant ecstasy, for rejoicing. Some people struggle with this. They, 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 the idea that there might be joy in the doctrine of election does not seem to be a connection which many people can readily understand. Why does God save some and not others? The Bible doesn't give us a full answer except to say that God does it for his own glory. That's as far as it goes. This is why we refer to it as unconditional election. Because there is nothing in us that God sees that causes him to choose us. There's nothing that moves God to choose us. Like Israel of old, God loves us because he loves us. That's what he says of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. It's not because you're greater than any other nation. It's not because you're so impressive. 
I set my love upon you. I loved you because I loved you. That's all. And there is no further information than we have, except in the negative. When this is in any way explained, what do we find? We find Paul, for instance, as he writes to the Corinthian church in chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, talking about this subject, and this is what he says to the Corinthians. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So if somewhere along the line you've got this strange idea that God chooses someone on the basis of what he sees in them, you need to go back and you need to read 1 Corinthians again. There is nothing in us that causes God to look upon us and say, she's got potential. People sometimes think that salvation is only for the wise. Even those of us who love the doctrines of grace, who love the sovereignty of God, it's easy to fall into that way of thinking. Even if we're not really explicitly conscious about it. Why did God choose me? And not someone else. Insofar as we know. At this moment in time. Because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Why? Well. There must be some difference between us. I must be smarter. I must be more spiritually aware. Scripture says no chose you because he chose you. And he doesn't owe an explanation to anyone. Powerful example of this kind of teachable and humble spirit that we need to have when we talk about these things, right? Because you start talking about this subject and, and right away in the hearts of many, this rebellion rises up. I see it there. I, I know what the text says. I don't like it, though. I'm not. Uh, there's something that causes me to rebel against this. What we need when we come to subjects like this is a teachable and humble spirit. We need to submit, to submit ourselves to the Word of God. No matter what it says, whether it makes sense to me in the moment or not. The, the first. When I was a, a teenager, and I was asked for the first time to teach the Bible in any kind of setting, I was asked to teach it in the youth group that I was still a part of, which doesn't work so well. <laughs> you're a 16, 17-year-old kid, and you're teaching your friends. There's not a great level of respect there to begin with. And I was asked to do this. Happened to be reading through Romans at the time. I said, oh, hey, I'm in Romans 9. I'll, I'll, I'll teach Romans 9. Which is, you know, one of the primary passages on this subject in all of Scripture. And it never occurred to me that there would be an issue. Because I was so young and naive, I just thought you should believe what the Scripture says. So I'm teaching and people are getting upset. And, you know, it's, it's, and I'm wondering what's going on.
argue with him. But people do want to argue with Paul. They want to argue with Jesus. They want to argue with the scriptures. I don't get it. When we come to the word of God, we need to have an attitude that says, I sit under the authority of scripture. And I am going to conform my heart and my mind to the word of God. Salvation is for those who are teachable and humble. Jesus says, little children. The little children. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Powerful example of this kind of teachable, humble spirit, this idea of being an infant, can be seen in the life of a woman named Etta Linneman. Before Etta Linneman became a Christian, she was a highly esteemed New Testament scholar and theologian. Yeah. Before she was a Christian, she was highly esteemed as a New Testament scholar and theologian. Her ed educational credentials were impeccable. She had studied under the masters of higher criticism in Germany. If you're familiar with the name Rudolf Bultmann, she was one of his students. Entirely unbelieving, as were all of her professors. She became part of the elite in the practice of historical, critical method of interpretation. Her first book became a bestseller. She became professor of theology at a university there in Germany. After writing her second doctor doctoral dissertation, she was awarded the honorary title of professor of New Testament in theology at Phillips University in Marburg. She was inducted into the Society for New Testament Studies. But as her star was rising, she began to reflect on her critical methodology. When I say critical methodology, I mean just that. This school, I mean, this is what all of theological liberalism is based on. They come to the scripture not to sit under the authority of scripture, but to criticize the scripture. And she came to the conclusion that her, as she put it, scientific work on the biblical text and her lectures were not grasping spiritual truth. She saw that she was serving a philosophical, theolog a theological philosophy, rather, that was rooted in agnosticism. And this brilliant woman became profoundly disillusioned, and she drifted into alcoholism to dull her misery. But when she was at her very lowest, she experienced grace. This is how she described it. At that point, God led me to vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. I heard their testimonies as they reported what God had done in their lives. Finally, God himself spoke to my heart by means of a Christian brother's words. By God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. My destructive addictions were replaced by a hunger and thirst for his word and for fellowship with Christians. I was able to recognize sin clearly as sin rather than merely make excuses for it as was my previous habit. I can still remember the delicious joy I felt when for the first time black was once more black and white was once more white. The two ceased to pool together as indistinguishable gray. And she goes on to conclude her testimony by saying, by God's grace, I experienced Jesus as the one whose name is above all names. I was permitted to realize that Jesus is God's son, born of a virgin. 
He is the Messiah and the Son of Man. Such titles were not merely conferred on him as the result of human deliberation. I recognized first mentally, but then in a vital way, in an experiential way, that Holy Scripture is inspired. That is why I said no to historical critical theology. I regard everything that I taught and wrote before I entrusted my life to Jesus as refuse. I wish to use this opportunity, she says, to mention that I have thrown away my two books, along with my contributions to journals and anthologies. Whatever of these writings I had in my possession, I threw into the trash with my own hands. I ask you sincerely to do the same with any of them you might have on your own bookshelf. And for the next 15 years, Etta Lineman served God at a Bible institute in Indonesia. God had revealed himself to her. And if you were listening, you heard Lineman using the same kind of language that we find here in Luke 10. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God revealed himself to Edelman. If you are in Christ this morning, it is because God revealed himself to you. It's because at some time, God brought someone to you to proclaim the gospel. And through that gospel, whether spoken or written, whatever it may have been, God changed your heart. He took what was a heart of stone and he made it a heart of flesh. And he granted you faith and repentance. And you saw Jesus. And he took and he made you his. So having analyzed the return from their mission, we ought to rejoice. If we belong to Christ, we ought to rejoice. We rejoice in God's victory over Satan. We rejoice in having our names written in heaven. And we rejoice in the supreme joy of our Savior. Who himself takes joy in the salvation of sinners. Are these the sources of your joy? Do you rejoice in these things? Even when life is difficult. Even when sorrow and calamity come. Is there this underlying foundation of joy? which keeps you moving forward, which keeps you praising God, which continues to remind you that you are not alone. You belong to one who gave his life for you. Father, may we be a joyful people. There is so much to rejoice in. We thank you, Father, that we are yours. We thank you that our Savior rejoices. And because Jesus rejoices, Father, we can rejoice in anything, through anything. And we can look forward, Father, to an eternity which will consist of nothing but Father, thank you for these things. May we walk in them. May we live in them. May we exhibit them in our 